For this episode, we partnered with Seattle Sperm Bank. Did you know Seattle Sperm Bank ships to fertility clinics anywhere in the U.S.? Seattle Sperm Bank is one of the nation's most trusted sperm donor resources and can provide the guidance and expertise you need to find the best donor for your family building journey. With over 200 carefully screened open ID donors, they offer the simplest and most transparent pricing structure in the industry, saving patients money versus other sperm banks. And most importantly, Seattle Sperm Bank has a reputation for high quality sperm vials, which we can back up with specimens we've received at our own clinics giving patients the best chance for pregnancy. Visit their website at seattlespermpaint.com. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two simply, simply, sensuously, sumptuous, spectacularly (laughs) stellar co-hosts, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, and I still love Carrie's alliteration. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Love those adjectives. You used lots of adjectives in that introduction. Thank you. I feel like I, feel like <laughs> I need to get a, a Fertility Docs Uncensored thesaurus just for We need a thesaurus. We really do. Yeah. <laughs> and today we are very happily joined by uh, Elise Mencius, who is the clinic relations manager for Seattle Sperm Bank. And so that kind of gives you a hint into what we're going to talk about for, for the meat of our episode. So we are very to have you happy to have you with us, Elise. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me to discuss sperm. <laughs> it is Four it women is discussing sperm. Entirely yes. our pleasure, because who doesn't like to talk about sperm? Yeah. Um, so we were talking kind of before we we all logged on here about what um what non-sperm anatomy and and everything that kind of goes around that. And you have a particular spinal, I don't want to say issue because that's it's not it's not an issue. Um what's a good word, girls? Decor. Decor. Yes. <laughs> that is a much better word. You have particular <laughs> spinal decor. And so we're kind of curious. What is it? So I have a tattoo of my spine right on my spine. <laughs> like top to bottom? Top to bottom. Um, really? A blank spot for my very last vertebrae because I was born missing it which was discovered huh. randomly later, but yeah. from top to bottom. Interesting. So, what, what made you decide that this was going to be the tattoo? <laughs> right. It's first? Pretty permanent. Um, I studied biology in undergrad and really, really loved anatomy. And I loved skeletal structure. And I just thought, oh, what a cool piece of art to have on my body. I was inspired by... Um, this anatomy, this very early anatomy book that was made by sketching and it was um, written in Latin. So it was these beautiful sketches of the human body in different parts. And I wanted my, I wanted my back to look like that. And I'm still very happy with it. (laughs) That was really cool. (laughs) So does it go all the way up to C1 up at the top? So it's, uh, it's under my shirt. So um, the neck and the lower, lower back area is 
um, empty. But uh, yeah, I tried to keep it so that I could hide it when I chose when I chose. So logistically, how long did it take them to do that? type of tattoo because I could oh. if you're really detailed it could take quite a while I would think yeah um it, around four to five hours wow yeah. oh that's not too bad is there any color to it is it all in shades of uh black and gray or yeah it's just it's black and then it's shading um and then a little you know icing on the interesting cake is my tattoo artist is missing a hand so he did it all oh. one-handed wow <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. And did you re- did you research your tattoo artist before you selected him? Uh very mildly. So <laughs> there was uh, only a couple of shops where I grew up and one had a better reputation than the other. I yeah. went in and I checked um I asked them about how they sterilize and yeah. how they keep things clean and how it all works. Um, and they were really detail-oriented about it and I felt safe proceeding. And mm-hmm. um I actually started it in my early 20s and just um you know, almost 15, 20 years later, <laughs> finished it because wow. my eyes actually moved out of town and then moved back. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Did he go, oh, the girl he absolutely remembered me. It I'm was, sure he's 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 wonderful. Um, in the meantime, he got married, had some kids. I got married. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like we all moved on with life. We all had life. So, so it's neat. cool to reconnect with him and get it wrapped up. <laughs> That's awesome. Neat. That's neat. Any future tattoos of any other bony structures in your body or anything? Or uh, I want to continue with it. I want to um, continue getting uh, maybe on my arm, maybe on my leg, a few more. Yeah bony areas kind of stick with the theme <laughs> there you go yeah yeah that's very, very cool that's very cool. <laughs> all right susan do we have a question today we do we do all right our question today um i picked a sperm related question um <laughs> my husband's 51 and had a vasectomy 10 plus years ago we knew going into pregnancy together, we would need to use IVF PISA testing. He had been on testosterone shots for inflammation, energy, mood for about three years. To start IVF, they took him off T for two months. His testosterone level plummeted to 230 and was miserable. They let him go back on the T shots and added low-dose HCG. Four months later, he had a PISA testing and they found zero sperm. It was suggested we look at donor sperm or adoption. We didn't take that as an answer. After reignited hope, we took him off testosterone Testosterone 100% in August, um, and it was 724 at that time. He is now taking 50 milligrams of Clomid every day, dropped to 202 in September and October 369. We were oh. encouraged to see the increase. How long would you wait to try another piece of Tessie? And she does not say what her age is. So the life cycle of sperm production is is just shy of about three months. And so three months would be the absolute minimum that that I would wait. And some of the urologists advocate going like even longer cycles mm-hmm. um, so that you've got got more time to build everything up because it's not it's not just on day one of stopping testosterone that everything is going to kick back in. You have to assume there's going to be some extra time. So I would say at least four months, probably closer to six. I recently heard something that some urologists are even advocating up to a year. You can still see a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's it's almost like when women take Depo-Provera, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's something strong and it shuts the whole system down and it sometimes just takes a while. You know, it is. I think it is reassuring that you're seeing a rise in, in his in, endogenous testosterone level. Um, but, you know, it, it sounds like this is kind of really your focus. I think it's fine to potentially even... Um, you know, at, at six months try, um, but also know that you may want to hold out for another three to six months beyond that 
depending on the female involved, because we know that that can be a a major factor as well. Yeah. And just as a side note, I was going to say, I had a patient once who went the Clomid route. He had not had a vasectomy, but he had been on testosterone for a long time. He went the um, Clomid route. Then he did HCG for six months to a year. And I wasn't real optimistic. And then we put him on FSH and he was on a really, really low dose three days a week. Six months after that, he had some sperm and we were able to free sperm and, and ultimately his wife was able to get pregnant with his sperm um, and IVF. Mm-hmm. We had a, a patient where sometimes it's helpful if you have the eggs out already. And so we had her eggs out because he was in the midst of cancer treatment. And so mm-hmm. because of her age, we got as, got out as much as we could. And then after he finished treatment and and had plenty of time to resume sperm production. And he'd also had a vasectomy to complicate things. But sometimes that can be really helpful because it takes the pressure off because you just know once you have sperm, you'll then thaw the eggs and you'll go from there. So a couple different ways you can handle it, but good luck. I hope it works. All right. So today, continuing on the theme of sperm, um, we have Elise with us, which is fantastic because it's really, it's very helpful to talk to the other people within the fertility industry because everybody thinks about the fertility clinics and yes, we do, you know, we're very heavily involved in all of it, but nobody does, nobody does this alone. And so there is a huge industry surrounding this of the people who make the medications, who help find other parts and pieces of this puzzle and sperm donors are a huge part of that. So we are very grateful that that you are here to talk to us today. And the big pressing question that all of us want to know, because our patients want to know is, where do these guys come from? (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) So we have five different lab locations where uh, donors can come visit us. And they're all next to big universities. They're all next to med schools. So Mm -hmm. a lot of our donors actually do just come from campuses because they're students. The other places they come from is just the local city that they're in. So we've got Seattle Sperm Bank, obviously in the Seattle area. We also have um, another lab in Bellevue, Washington. We're in San Diego, California. We are in um, Denver, Colorado. So out of, oh, in Phoenix, Arizona. So out of all of those areas, um, that is where these donors are coming from. <laughs> and how do you guys advertise? Do you use TikTok? Do you use Facebook? Do you use, how do you, how do you get the donors in? Flyers in the bathroom? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, flyers in the bathroom. <laughs> All of it. We try everything. So yes, we have put, um, not uh, flyers, but like uh, clings on the mirror in the bathrooms. And like, so, because sometimes this is something, you know, guys don't want to go up in the middle of campus and, be caught reading about this. Sometimes they feel a little shy about it. It's a little awkward in the beginning. Um, So the bathroom's a nice, you know, even inside the stalls, it's a nice safe space where they can um, take a picture of it and go look it up later and feel more confident about this. Uh, So yes, all over campus, uh, sidewalk chalk. Uh, We have some artists on our team who will decorate the sidewalks with, you can help a family and this is why and we need you and come by and see us. other things we do is, yes, we, we're on social media. Um, we have some um, great team members who are, are are very fun on TikTok and informative about what it looks like from the lab side, you know, and really kind of take away that, that pressure off that first visit, especially, you know, this is what the lab looks like. And it's like a medical office. And this is what you should expect when walking through the doors. 
kind of take the pressure off the whole situation. Mm-hmm. So what kind of what kinds of questions do the guys ask when they walk in? Because you know, if you know, if I think of a twenty something, thirty something year old guy, they probably don't know much about reproduction, infertility. That's not probably their, been their big focus. It's been preventing it probably. Right. And so, what kinds of questions do they have, and are they kind of do they understand kind of what the whole process is, or are they just kind of come in and they have no idea usually? It's a huge range. So. We do have some guys who come in and they're very familiar with it because they have a friend or a family member who've gone through um, this. We do have donors who are um, their donor conceived themselves. So some guys come in and they're very familiar with the process. And it's just really interesting for them to see it from the donor perspective. And um, then there's other guys who come in and who, you know, I've donated blood. How similar is this? What does this look like? And so we have to get into with everyone, the details of the responsibility of this kind of donation. Um, Sometimes it's logistics, you know, it's, uh, I, um, I'm almost done with school, you know, can I just donate for the next month or so? And, you know, so we have to explain the time commitment involved in um, what this realistically looks like for their life. Um, and we have to talk about their family medical history, we talk about their personal medical history. So there is a huge range of questions, you know, and sometimes the questions are, can my partner come help me in the donation room? So sometimes it's like, it, you know, there's a huge range of questions and uh, I think we've heard them all. <laughs> Do you, do donors come in and um, kind of want to know more information about who may be selecting them? Yeah, so we're very transparent about this goes to help all different kinds of families, um, you know, single moms by choice. We see LGBTQ families okay. um, and we we see, you know, everyone, you know, every, there's a representative from all kinds of family groups and backgrounds who rely on donor sperm to make families. And so we really express that um, you don't get to select ahead of time. <laughs> you don't get to know who they are um, and they don't get to reach out to them, you know, from we do uh, support that connection down the road. All of our donors are 100% open ID, mm-hmm. but okay, it only goes one way. So can you explain to our listeners what open what ID that means? Yeah, yeah. So every single one of our donors has to agree with at least one form of contact with any donor-conceived um, adult. So after any donor-conceived children reach the age of 18, they can um, come back to us and request to be connected with their donor. Uh, but it's a it, it works only one way. So only the donor-conceived adult can request that access. So the donors sort of are in waiting. <laughs> How do you stay in touch with donors for decades? Yeah. Um, We send out a questionnaire to them annually, and we ask them for all their personal health updates and their family's health updates. Because maybe they, you know, someone um, got a cancer diagnosis in the past year, and that could be really important to somebody who's genetically related to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it works really well. Uh, Sometimes we get reports like, oh, I broke my leg in this past year. And we're like, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) But that doesn't affect anyone. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so the guys are really great about making sure we're in touch and we make sure we have their contact information and um, just know all about them as, you know, as as time goes on. How many people? Go ahead. Oh, sometimes people are wondering about um, when they are, you know, maybe they've already conceived a child with a donor. What's the likelihood of a donor who doesn't have extra sperm or they didn't buy enough sperm the first time around? 
around to get them to potentially collect again? Yeah, that's always a really tough situation. Um, We will always ask. We will always reach out and find out uh, if that donor is willing to join the program again. And sometimes it just doesn't work if they don't live near the lab. Donors have to donate in person, but they can donate at any of those labs. So we have seen donors move from one city and they happen to move to another city where we're at and they can continue donating. Um, And we have been successful with asking guys to come back to the program after they've retired or left the program for, you know, took a break or whatever whatever reason. Um, I think something else that really benefits is when we start getting close to um, the end of our donor reserves, we get get low on inventory or we get close to our family limits. We then um, remove that donor from the website and make them siblings only. So if uh, a family's looking for a particular donor and they just don't have that inventory or I used him in the past, it's always great to give us a call and find out if we actually do have some and it's just not on the website anymore. How are you able to help with diversity of donors? Because I know that's actually been in the news lately about how certain women of certain ethnicities just can't find donors that really kind of match what they want. In what ways do you try and help get donors in that will meet the needs of those kind of patients? Yeah, that's actually a big one. Finding Black donors is probably the biggest Uh um, in diversity we're looking for. So we get asked that a lot. And um, one thing we do is we're very aware of it and when we're looking for donors, we make sure our posters have black men on them, but also men of all different ethnicities. So that when someone's looking, you know, and they see that poster, they feel represented and they know that, yes, you're someone we're looking for. Um, Another thing is to make sure we're not just uh, looking for donors inside rock climbing gyms, but also boxing gyms and different (laughs) kind of gyms. We ask all the organizations on campus and um, sometimes they're very, uh, specific uh, ethnicity, you know, like the African-American student organizations and uh-huh. um, ask them specifically, you know, hey, we're looking for donors. Are are we permitted to come talk to your group and talk about, and we'll, and we'll talk about the education aspect of it. You know, they get to know about a lot about their own sexual health, a lot about their own fertility, something they're probably not thinking about. They get um, a full uh, genetic carrier screening done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they help out families who are looking for them. Uh, I know I was at an event uh, at a gym and uh, a gentleman came up to me and he was shorter and he was just like, oh, no one's looking for me. No worries. And I saw him <laughs> and I was like, no, no, there's no height restriction. There's no ethnicity restriction. So a lot of it is like really, really pushing like that conversation piece that these are the families that are looking for you. We're not, they're not looking for someone who's out of um, a book of models or, you know, there's not yeah. one specific type of family who's looking for one specific type of so a lot of our um, outreach surrounds education and highlighting the importance of this type of donation and the need. So uh-huh. when we see those articles come out like New York Times and Washington Post, it's so great to be a part of that because then it creates this conversation around it. It raises the awareness. Mm-hmm. We see an increase in donor applications. We see men come to us and say, I had no idea there was a shortage. I had no oh. idea that somebody was looking for me. And so we just, we keep trying new things and um, not one thing is going to fix it. And we're very aware of that. So we keep trying new things, Uh, open up labs in new locations. Denver's our newest market. And we've had um, really good success there so far. We've been open there for a couple months. That's awesome. You had mentioned family limits. Can you address that? What what exactly is that? Yeah, so we currently have family limits of 25 families per donor. So uh, as soon as the donor gets to that point in the U.S., 
um, that that's where we cut it off. It's different for different countries and we follow whatever local regulations um, ask us to. Um, here is there isn't standard or is it just what y'all happen to do? Yeah, that's uh, a recommendation from ASRM. So we're following what they say because they do a good job at providing guidelines and recommendations. <laughs> we not agree. a really good reason to go against them. <laughs> what happens with the guy's sex life as they're going through this? Like, are they allowed to have one? Are they allowed to minimize <laughs> Like, how does that work? That's such a great question. And that is something that our donors come and ask us. Yeah, I, I have a partner. Um, how does this work? So they do have to be abstinent for 48 hours before donation. So that's one aspect. So they have to kind of schedule it. And we've interviewed guys anonymously so that they can hear from other ones in the program um, how it works. And um, is, what they've said is it's very easy to schedule around, you know, because you can always go to a donation during the day and um, have a date night later that night. Or... Um, um, we're very flexible with scheduling. So maybe they planned to come in today and they were just like, oh, I'm not going to make it in because a date night has been scheduled. <laughs> so maybe a date lunch. And so they don't make it in. And that's fine um, because we're open multiple days, you know, during the week. Um, but we have seen men try to come in without that abstinence piece. And we then have to then let them know we can tell um, your sperm counts are down and that is really important. So it's just a little bit of scheduling around their schedule. Um, the other part of it is we do um, routine STI testing. Wow. So we have condoms in our labs. You know, we really encourage them to be safe when they are out there and make good choices, not just for their own personal health, but it also allows them to continue to be a donor mm -hmm. in the program. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. So were they getting tested every single time they come in to give a donation? No, they're not. They're getting tested uh, in batches. So if it's required by the FDA that they are um, tested before and after a donation is made. But that donation has to stay in quarantine for at least six months. So the way it works in real life is they're tested every couple of months and we keep tabs on all of the donations within that testing batch. So they'll come mm -hmm. in and get tested. Um, and let's say they donate for the next week. All of that will kind of go into quarantine until six months down the line, they get tested, everything comes back negative, And then all of that week's worth of donation from six months ago can now be released. So it feels a little complicated, but in practice, the guys are just getting routinely tested um, for everything every couple of months. And we're just releasing things ongoing. Very cool. You mentioned something about the responsibility that the, that you talked to the donors about the responsibility of being a donor and what that really entails. And you kind of went through a little bit of that, but kind of what do you tell them? Because to me, if I were a donor and you told me I was going to be responsible for potentially communicating with somebody 18 years later and I may have, you know, 25 different families, that would be, to me, that would really, I'm surprised that doesn't turn more men off because I would think that would be really intimidating for them. Yeah, I think um, some men do walk, you know, some men do walk away from the program. Yeah. Because that is a lot being open ID and having that communication piece down the line. We think it's really important. Um, it just, it, this whole process, we humanize it as much as possible. And this feels so big. Mm -hmm. So 
that that's a that's a hard point for us. We do have a psychologist on staff who helps talk with them about this, what this conversation can mean. Our oldest uh, offspring are not yet 18. So we haven't I seen wondered this about that. Yeah, I wondered about <laughs> we, that. You um, haven't hit that yet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But we are, we are, um, we are setting, you know, we're putting things in place to get ready for this. But yeah. so in that is starting the foundation and making sure they know that this conversation is coming mm-hmm. um, and they're not alone in it. We're here with them, um, but it, they should let their partner know, you know, maybe not their partner mm-hmm. today, but if they happen to have a long-term partner and in 18 years, they're settled with somebody, uh, they yeah. should probably let them know. <laughs> Yeah, probably a good idea. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, other things we, you know, we tell them they should talk to their family about it because 23andMe and Ancestry exist. Mm-hmm. And so we do our best to protect their identity today, but we can't guarantee anything because it could be a cousin who got tested. It could be, yeah. you know, it could be somebody else in the family who got tested and it'll show this link. So that's mm-hmm. another thing we talk to them about. Um we're talking about the responsibilities they don't have. They are not parents in this equation. They are mm-hmm. donors. So we tell, you know, we let them know you you do not have any parental rights in this. And so they can take that load off. You know, nobody's going to come back and um, look for any kind of support or anything in that aspect. And mm-hmm. again, them having this adult conversation in 18 years takes a lot of that off their shoulders. It's, an, it's two adults having a conversation about this donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully everyone's prepared for that. <laughs> Yeah. And what that looks like. So when when you have someone who has been through and is is a donor, either active or retired, have you ever had any anybody come back and say, look, I know I donated three years ago. You still like I still see my profile up because there's still a lot. I want to pull my samples. I'm now in a relationship and she's not OK with it. And can I can I take my samples off the market? I have I want to say I've seen that one time. It's, you know, we were very thorough. So when someone's joining the program, it can take at least a month. So there is a lot of conversation. There's a lot of time for them to think. Um, And I haven't seen where it's already, um, files have already been shipped out to families. Mm -hmm. It's sort of that six month period before the first batch is released Mm -hmm. um, where someone stepped in and said, oh, you know what? I've thought more about this, you know, and they've already donated. Uh, We give them the option to purchase their own vials. So, and we're, you know, we do our best to really prepare them for what this means, but we want everyone to be comfortable in this. You know, I would really hate for somebody in 18 years to be like, you know what? I regretted this this whole time. And I really wish that I hadn't done it. So thankfully we have, we don't see that. And I think part of that is because we're open ID, we have to have all those upfront conversations. They're really aware of what this donation is going to turn into um, and what they're contributing. Has your company always been open ID? Yes. So for we've always been open ID for a very brief moment in time within our first couple years, we were like, oh, we can have some anonymous donors um, with no contact and uh, pretty quickly removed it. It just, it feels like the right um, Mm -hmm. thing to be doing in this space Yeah, and um, never looked back. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, yeah. Uh, what is the what's the protocol that happens when and we see this a lot where we'll have a couple that needs to use a donor and they will have genetic carrier screening that's done with us that looks at a panel that's 
you know, three, four hundred plus genes. And they go to look at their donors panel and he's been tested for, you know, whatever number. Sometimes it's considerably lower. Sometimes it is a big panel, but whatever it is, doesn't have the thing that the egg provider carries. And so we always tell the patient like, okay, go back, go back to the sperm bank and see, Mm -hmm. is this possible for this guy to be tested on that? Do you guys see that from your end a whole lot? Yeah, we do. Especially there's so many genetic panels out there. Yeah. And there's so many (laughs) different things you can be screened on. Uh, So for us, we're screening on 514 conditions and it's a lot. And sometimes you know, patients are just not on the same screening panel we are. And so it could be mm-hmm. the same gene, but you don't know because they labeled them yeah. differently. Yeah. Uh, we have genetic counselors on staff oh, for good. this specific reason. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's great. That's really yeah, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So they, um, they are great for this. So they reach out to our donors and it turns out, oh, there is a missing, you know, the the egg source is a carrier for something and we really do need to have the um, donor tested. We will reach out to the donor and if they're actively donating, the next time they come by, they do a little bit of an extra blood work and done. You know, we, in a couple of weeks, we have the results. Yeah. If they happen to not be actively donating, we give them a call and they have the option of, and this is really nice that we can mail it to their house and they can do like a spit sample. So... <laughs> They can get their genetic testing that way. And um, the last thing that happens is sometimes guys just aren't available for any testing or they absolutely refuse to be tested any further. Um, More often than not, they're just, they've moved out of the country. We have like a handful of guys who've just, they're doing something cool and they're not here anymore. And so it's just (laughs) not possible to get the testing done. (laughs) When you're doing this genetic testing, are there any things that you're testing for that are like, even if you're only a carrier, you're you're not eligible? Are, are there any things that just kind of knock you out of the running? Yes, there is. Um, off the top of my head, I can't. <laughs> I don't know the specific genes, but I can say things like um, if someone came in with a family medical history and they have a mother who had breast cancer before the age of 40, that's mm-hmm. kind of a red flag and we're not going to continue with a donor. Or if somebody doesn't have you know, somebody was adopted and they don't have access to their biological medical history, we can't proceed forward. So there are some things that people who have been, but people who have been conceived by donors, you can use that donor history as their. Yes. Yes. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yes. We need, um, we, if we have enough information, the genetic counselors can look at it enough. And um, so, yeah, so our genetic counselors, and then we have um, a doctor on staff. They all review all of this. They review the lab results. They review the medical history results. They look for trends in that. And they Mm -hmm. try to see, you know, is this going to be safe for someone to use? Is this enough information for someone to make an informed decision? Mm -hmm. And so part of that is, so they may have like the sickle cell trait and that would be bad for someone who also had the sickle cell trait. Yeah. But if you are aware of that and you know you're not a carrier, your egg source is not a carrier, then it would be okay to use that donor. So mm-hmm. for the most part, it's a lot of information and patients can take that information to their healthcare team and make a decision that's right for them. Um, yeah. Are there any other tests that you guys do other than what's required by the FDA, which is mainly infectious disease testing and psychological screening? Any other specific tests that are unique to Seattle Sperm Bank or just in general that you guys do as a routine that's yeah, not required? Our, our uh, um, extended genetic carrier screening, we have really robust genetic screening and the FDA doesn't quite 
you know, require all of that. Um, And I think just being open ID, the questioning that the guys go through to become a donor and that mindset they're in, I think is above and beyond that brings a different type of person. Do you screen for things like smoking history, drug abuse, drug addiction, or, you know, use of drugs, illegal drugs? So we do, we do ask them that and it's in there if they're, um, you can actually review that if they are smokers and kind of like alcohol use kind of things. Um, uh, but we are not doing like drug testing okay. and it sort of works really well because every single donated sample undergoes a semen analysis. And so any kind of um, lifestyle habits that would be detrimental to that, we're going to see and we're going to see mm-hmm. over time. So um, if we saw a decline in the quality, we give that information and we give that feedback to them. You know, your samples are unusable. Have you had any changes? Sometimes it's finals week and we see a decline in sperm yeah. counts. Yeah, they're stressed. stressed and nobody's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> so we I feel like we, you know, we have a good conversation with them. We have good rapport with them. We know our donors really, you know, we see them, you know, they're, they're coming in and out every day, get to know them. But then we're also looking at that lab testing. We're looking at their semen analysis every single time. Mm-hmm. We're freezing it and taking a small portion of that and thawing it. So we know what it looks like thawed before it gets sent out to you guys. Mm -hmm. Keeping really close tabs. So I know that there's psychological testing, but what if, what if someone's just a jerk? Like (laughs) he passes all of the stuff, but he comes in and he's an asshole to the secretary and is just kind of a douche canoe. Like what do you do with those people? Cause he can pass all of that testing, but Uh, is there, is there any just gestalt of, I don't want to work with this man. I don't want any more of him running around in the world. We're going to cut this off. Yeah. So that's so much harder to quantify. Yeah. Um, So something like that turns into a staff member being, you know, asking another staff member, hey, can you go talk to him? Is it just me? Is it just today? Is he having a bad day? Is it, does he seem like that to you? You know, so that's someone we'll keep an eye on through the process and have a note about. When we and, deal with egg donors, if egg donors are not responsible and they're not being yeah, showing nice up and not being tested or they're being irresponsible, it's like you're done. Yeah. 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 Like so, if an egg donor is rude to my staff, you're out. Yes. Yes. That, and it's the same thing for us. We're not, we want these men to represent us and mm. patients are going to meet, <laughs> you know, everyone's going to yeah. meet who these guys are. We want to be, you know, represented in a positive light. Um, and we, and we just don't, we don't want to be around someone like that for six or more months. You know, it's, we don't want to deal with that day in and day out. So uh, we have really, we have really great guys in the program because of that. Because, hey, did you, did you see that guy who came in? He doesn't seem the best. <laughs> if he you had know, one, to, oh, go ahead, Abby. I was just gonna say, one of the things that we always, that patients always ask us about egg donors is they'll say, well, you know, what would motivate somebody? Why would somebody want to donate her yeah. eggs? And, and, you know, that's the interesting thing for me, particularly, and I think all of us, because we don't really usually get to talk. I mean, for years and years and years, I've used sperm from sperm banks, but we don't really get to talk to someone like you who's on the <laughs> front line. And so I'm really interested to hear from you, you know, do most donors come in because they feel like this is something they can do for somebody else? Do they need the money? Is it a combination of both? Or are there other things that they um, think about when they want to donate the sperm? So we ask all of our donors this question and it's in all of their profiles. 
details. So if anybody's looking at a particular donor, oh. get into that extended profile and find out exactly why that particular person donated. And what we see is um, a combination of financial factors because mm-hmm. there is the aspect that it um, you have a lot more freedom than a part-time job and it really does help pay for those books. Yeah. Or um, someone said that they actually just saved all year and put a down payment on a house. And that kind of blew us away. Wow. <laughs> like it's not a ton. We're not, we're not, um, you know, overloading them with extra income. <laughs> but, um, and then the other aspect is uh, they came in because, oh, you know, I wasn't sure how much I would make. You're, you don't get paid for blood donations. But then I found out that you guys needed donors and I learned about the families and then they're really moved by that. Oh. Um, and then other people have just real life experiences with it. They watch their friends go through infertility. They watch their friends use a donor and they uh-huh. were just like, how can I be a positive force in that? Oh, that's awesome. Do you, do you have any like VIP donor section? Of, <laughs> this is because I always tell my patients like, look, pick your top two or three criteria that are the most important to you. Because if you are looking from someone who was the top of their class at Harvard, won a gold medal in the Olympics, is the first year <laughs> in the Boston Philharmonic, and also is a model on the side, you're probably not going to find that. But I mean, those guys <laughs> do exist. I don't know if it's <laughs> but do you have like a VIP section of the hit, hit all the classically desirable training? <laughs> I think that we're very skewed on like what VIP qualities are in a donor <laughs> because we're like, oh man, he's so dependable. Every time he comes in, he has great sperm counts. He comes in three times a week. <laughs> he always like has a, a smile on his face. <laughs> some of our positive donor attributes aren't the same. Um, but we do, we do have some guys that will sell out immediately. We know when we put them up on the website, this guy is going to sell out. You know, it's, it's our doctors. It's our, you know, sometimes it's our older donors. Um, people like to see, a, you know, someone who's already established in their life. And they're like, I want to be a donor because I'm a parent and everybody should get that chance to be a parent. Uh-huh. And so, it's, you know, those guys will go really fast. Interesting. Um, but you can, like, anybody can always reach out to us and we do free photo matching. We do free one-on-one consultations. Oh. So yeah, if you do have that top three and you're sort of like, oh, I don't know. I, how, you know, have you talked to this guy? Is he funny? Is he shy? <laughs> we'll, get, we'll tell you all, we'll tell you everything we can about him. We'll, oh, cool. you know, yeah, yeah. How he wears is his he, hair. And, is there an age limit? There is an age limit. Um, 39. Okay. That's it. You, our oldest donors are the FDA cuts us off. I want to say it's 41 and a half mm-hmm. is the absolute cutoff. Oh, interesting. Okay. So if we have someone who's a great donor, we'll say, okay, you turned 39 this year. It's, this is going to be it. it. <laughs> so is, is your sperm bank looking at any um, additional testing on sperm? Um, some of the newer things that are coming out other than just doing a semen analysis to potentially get more reassurance that we're getting good sperm other than these for our young, healthy guys with great family histories? Yeah, yeah. So we're always on the horizon, you know, looking on the horizon for the new technology to help out. Um to like make a better product, to have better, you know, because mm-hmm. we know this is going, you know, this may be a young, healthy guy, but it's going to somebody who maybe has spent a lot of time and effort trying to become a parent. So um, 
I'm not part of that department, but <laughs> yes, yes, we do look, we look at new papers that come out. We've been a part of research. There was um, a research paper done about cell phone use and, you know, how close it is to the semen samples and oh. heat and different things that are given off by a cell phone. Does that impact it? So we try to, you know, we'll send samples. We have, um, we'll send research samples, you know, if somebody's oh. reached their family limits and we have just way too many vials, you know, or we have someone who potentially is deferred because they test positive for something. Mm. Um, we can use all of those as research samples. Oh. Yeah. It, and that's so it's really great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And sometimes those research samples are used to help train people in clinics. So it's yeah. really nice being part of that whole system. But yes, we, we are always looking at new technology and trying to figure out, um, you know, what's the best way to process, you know, what's the best way to freeze these samples? Should we be doing, you know, a different type of freeze method? Should we be freezing them in different um, quantities? Should we, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what's the latest research on that? You know, right now we have a 10 million modal sperm guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, is that the optimal number? Um, you know, and making sure that we're providing something that is beneficial towards treatment. But even even all the way down to the, you know, the donor side, we provide them with lube in the room. And so we do testing and research on the lube that they're using and oh, make sure that we have good products from the start to the finish. That's awesome. What lube do you give them? What brand? Oh, that is a great question. It <laughs> just got switched. Oh, I know this answer. I was just in Denver. <laughs> I don't know this answer. It's it gone. Oh, well. It's okay. <laughs> Just thought I'd ask because we get that question sometimes. You're going to have to send that to us after because yeah. we're, all, we're all curious because that's a common question with patients. <laughs> that's a common question, yeah. Yeah. So if we have a listener who's thinking about using donor sperm for, for whatever reason, what would be kind of the most important message you could share with that person? Someone who's looking for a donor? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I would say take a deep breath. <laughs> it's this whole thing. <laughs> This whole process I know is sometimes it just feels weird. It's just weird at some points. Um, you're not alone. We're here to help you. Uh, write down everything you're looking for in a donor and be flexible. Write down yeah. all this, you know, I really, really want this ethnicity. That is very important to me. But it would be nice if they were also 5'11", because everyone in my family is 5'11", and it would just be so cool. Um, or it'd be really cool if they row. You know, I rowed in college, and <laughs> rowing is really important important, you know, write yeah. that, you know, be flexible on some of those things, but write them down, have them there. And yeah, then Nashville, it has something down. to do with music usually. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, there you go. Yeah. And then um, don't be afraid to call us for, uh, you know, if you're like, that's good. Any little thing, any, you know, what kind of lube did you use in the room? <laughs> don't <have to> call <laughs> us. <laughs> and you can run to the room and find out. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll go to the room and we will look. Um, but even like, you know, what's his personality like and what's he like as an, as an adult? And um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, these are things, you know, what does this jawline look like? And does it really look like this? I'm really trying to match <laughs> it to my partner. I'm really trying to match it to the rest of my family's characteristics. Don't be afraid to ask us those things. Or just awesome. like, I'm trying, I, I'm scheduled for treatment next month on the 10th. When should I ship this? I have no idea how to ship this. We're yeah. here for that. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for coming Great. to talk with us, Elise. We are we are very appreciative. And we're, as the generally uncensored member, I'm very appreciative that you answer all my screwball questions. <laughs> um, thank you for that. So we really appreciate you coming to, to yeah. talk to us. 
I appreciate talking about sperm. It's what I do every day. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Uh, To our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate those reviews. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So hop on by, leave us a like, leave us a review, say hi, all the things. You can also visit us on fertility.uncensored.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on our Ask the Docs segment anonymously. Um, Leave us some ideas and episode ideas. Don't hold back. We, We really like to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Did you know 64% of employers added a family building benefit because an employee asked for it? No matter the size of your organization, you have the power to make a difference for current and future employees. Want to know where to start? Progeny is here to help. Progeny is a family building benefits company that has been helping employees and employers advocate for increased access to effective and equitable fertility and family building benefits for over seven years. To get the resources that can help you make a difference, visit progyny.com forward slash talk to HR today.